right. You know, it's weeks like this week that it's a little bit difficult to know what to say from the pulpit, what uh, is the appropriate thing to be saying, since we've had the largest uh, land war in Europe in the last, well, since the Second World War began uh, just this week. And of course, being an international church, we have people that are, uh, have come from uh, Russian backgrounds, people who come from Ukrainian backgrounds, people obviously from all kinds of different countries. And uh, it makes a lot of us sad, I think, to see that there are people who are civilians who are suffering terribly uh, because of this aggression that's taking place in a country being invaded, a sovereign country being invaded in Europe. And I don't like to use the pulpit as a kind of political place. I think you've noticed maybe to the frustration of some of you that we, I don't address very many political issues from the pulpit because I don't think it's really the appropriate place to be political. But this is one of those examples where I often, you'll often hear me say what a different world it would be if people who claim to be Christians would just simply refuse to kill each other. Because what we have in Russia, you have the Russian Orthodox Church attacking the Ukrainian Orthodox Church people. And what a difference it would be if these people who claim to be in Christ would just simply refuse to kill other Christians. What is wrong with the church? That we fight and kill. In 2054, there was a schism that took place in the church between the East and the West. Some of you have probably heard of it. It's called the Great Schism. This is where the Catholic Church basically excommunicated the Eastern Church because of political issues and power issues. And where the West and the, the Western Church kind of took this almost adversarial approach with secular power because the popes wanted power, the emperors wanted power. The Eastern Church, which is called the Byzantine Church, took an almost entirely different approach, which was that they were going to support each other no matter what. The Byzantine church told the people in government, we will support you no matter what. Can you have that go back? And uh, can we have that go back? I'm not touching stuff, so I don't know why it's changing. And then you had the, you had the Eastern church that said to the, the powers that be, we will support you no matter what. And the, and, the, and the secular powers told the, told the Byzantine church, we will also support you no matter what. And this is why in the Ukraine, for many years now, if you've not been part of the Russian Orthodox Church, along that eastern part where the Russians took over, they've been condemning and t shutting down churches, Baptist churches, because there's a long history of Baptist churches in the Ukraine and in Russia. They've been shutting them down because there is this marriage between church and secular power. And you say, how is it possible that these folks, that the Russian Orthodox, good Russian Orthodox boys can go in and kill Ukrainian Orthodox? It's because there's this unholy alliance of power that has taken place. And you ever wonder, what does it look like when you have this alliance of power take place between church and state? And what does it look like? What is the kind of hell that it, that it wreaks into the world? You're seeing it right now where people who claim to be Christians, who are the same branch of orthodoxy, are killing other Christians who are of the orthodox branch. Is it any wonder the world looks at the church and thinks, 
This, place, this church has no place for me. I don't want to be part of this. Well, in the Bible today, as we're looking at our scripture, we see Jesus get pretty ticked off with church leadership. We see Jesus get angry. And most of the times when you, when you think about the Bible, people will say, oh, the Old Testament's the God of wrath, and the New Testament is Jesus with children and butterflies. But if you read the Bible, you'll find that the God of the Old Testament is often quite patient, especially considering the amount of time that is actually being covered in the Old Testament. There is far more time covered in the Old Testament than there is from the time of Christ to today. And in fact, when God finally you know, crushes uh, the kingdom of, of Judah with the, with the Babylonian Empire, it was after 400 years of Israel drifting away from what was the truth. And of course, when we think about the wrath of God in, in the story of the Gospels, we always think about Jesus driving the, the money changers out of the temple. And, and he was certainly full of, there was a certain amount of serious wrath there because the scripture tells us he braided together this, this whip. So he had a lot of time to think about what he was doing as he's braiding together the whip that he used to drive the people out of the temple. But with the passage we're looking at today, though, is the longest and most scathing tongue lashing that Jesus gives to people who are the religious folk of his time. And he aims it at the Pharisees, but it could be aimed in a much broader way as well. And it's known in the scriptures as the seven woes. And like in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, you have a section, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which are the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This seven woes is also kind of a section of scripture that's it has its own name because of its, its nature. It's such an unusual type of passage. So let's go ahead, and what we're going to do is read through the entire chapter, like we've done in the past. We're going to read through the whole thing because it's all one big piece, and then we'll uh, look at some stuff. We'll do kind of an overview and begin to get into it today, and then the next following weeks we'll go back up and go through it more slowly. So if you've been here with us for a while, You've seen that we've done this before, where we read a whole bunch, and then we eventually go back through it. So let's go ahead. This is Matthew 23, if you want to follow along your scriptures, and it says this. This is after his question and answer time with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where he's been asking these questions back and forth. And, uh, and then it says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So it's interesting that, first of all, Jesus is talking to the crowds and the disciples. He's no longer talking to the Pharisees. At least not to start out with. He eventually turns his direction toward them. He says this, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. But you're not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on, heaven, anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound to his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple which makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, then he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees! You hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First clean out the inside of the cup and dish, and then the inside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So, you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation. Ah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's quite a tongue lashing. And I think you can say why it's called the seven woes, because he says seven times the formula, woe to you, 
teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. So generally speaking, Jesus cuts loose on the Pharisees in the following ways. First of all, the Pharisees have become more concerned with celebrity than to service to God, which is what we'll look at today. Secondly, the Pharisees are misleading the people in their faith in numerous ways, and they're much more concerned about making converts than they are about making men of faith, people of faith. The Pharisees are making oaths, which Jesus speaks against in general. He speaks against it in the Sermon on the Mount quite explicitly. They're making oaths which display a lack of understanding regarding the priority of God and money and where true riches lie. The Pharisees are trying to look outwardly good, but inwardly they're full of sin. And finally, the Pharisees are delusional regarding the condition of their hearts, seeing themselves as heroes of the faith, particularly regarding the treatment of the prophets. Everyone is always the hero of their own story. You know, whenever you get into an argument with someone and you just think that they're wrong about something and you find that, you know, they believe they're right, they're the hero of their own story. Putin believes he's the hero of his own story, I think. In the, re in the reestablishment of the Soviet Union, he sees himself as heroic. Darth Vader thought he was the hero of his story, too. I mean, everyone always thinks they're the hero of their story. And the Pharisees believed they were the heroes of their story. But Jesus had a very different opinion, didn't he? Now, as I said, we'll go over these points in more detail in the upcoming weeks. But what I find interesting about them is they speak very much to our world today. I mean, it, this could be written yesterday. And it shouldn't surprise us that the issues of human sin come up again and again and again. It seems like we forget after a few generations, the lesson learned by the previous generations. The lessons of war. My grandfather's generation knows the devastation of war. Some of your grandparents and parents' generation who actually lived in Germany know the utter devastation of war. And then we forget, after a couple of generations, just how horrible things were, and we make the same stupid mistakes again and again. It's just something about our human condition and sin. Satan doesn't have to be creative to get us all screwed up. He just does the same thing over and over again, and we're dumb enough to fall into the same traps over and over again. It's just part of sin. It's what it means to be fallen. That we just don't seem to learn and stay in that place of having learned. And it's the same about the church, and especially this first part where Jesus talks about the Pharisees' desire to be celebrities. Because we are definitely in an age of celebrity right now in our society. So let's look at that passage again. When he begins to talk about them, we don't have to necessarily read through it again. But there's some things I want to point out. When he launches into this scourging of the Pharisees, he starts with this acknowledgement that the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones that have the place of teaching. He says they sit in Moses' seat. So he says that really the place of the, of the ordinary people are to listen and respect the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is one of those places where it's hard to get our heads around the idea, but basically the idea is God is a God of order. And you see this throughout the scripture. He's an order of creation. There's an order of government. There's an order of, of these folks being in the place of Moses' seat. But what we often see in this places of order is that there's sin that gets involved in it. 
So in fact, so when we talk about the idea, like if you look in Romans, particularly chapter 13, where he talks in Romans 13 about the, the place of secular government and the place of the church, and he says things that seem somewhat idealistic. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Things like, well, if you do the right thing, you have no reason to fear the secular government. You have no reason to fear the one who bears the sword. Well, we all know that, well, that's not entirely true because there have been unjust governments. Well, there's an order, but sin then works itself into that order, and it becomes something unrighteous. And it's the same thing that can happen in the church. There's an order in place, but sometimes sin can work its way into it, and it becomes unjust, and that's what's happened here. There's an order where the Pharisees and the scribes are to teach from Moses' seat, but they have become so consumed with their own selfishness, so consumed with what they want, that they have neglected what it really means to be in this place of teaching and of service. And so he attacks this love of celebrity, and he really gets into it with them. He says, everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide, and the tassels on their garments long. The phylacteries are those things that they would wear on their on the foreheads. It's, it was a box that contained scrolls of Scripture. And they would wear it on their forehead, and they would wear it on their arms, and it would be attached also to their wrists. And the original idea of it was, it was to be a place of remind, a reminder that the, that the law of Moses was the thing under which they submitted. It was on their foreheads. It was, it was to be what they thought about. It was to be what motivated how they acted with their hands, you know. So they would tie it to their foreheads and their hands as a symbol of being completely under the, the authority of the law of Moses. But then he says, but they're making their phylacteries wide so everyone can see them from far away. They're like these folks that, you know, they like to wear the big gold chains or the fancy Rolex watch or whatever it is to show that they have the blessing of God in their life because of their wealth. They like to have their tassels long so, you know, so their, their clothing looks dynamic. They want to be celebrities. They love the place of honor and banquets, most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi. You know, in today's world, this hunger for celebrity, it's unlike anything we've ever seen because social media has allowed almost anybody to become a, some, be followed online, be, a, be a, an influencer, a social influencer, a little celebrity. This is one reason I hate social media. And if you ever are trying to communicate via social media to me, it's not going to work because I don't look at it anymore. It disgusts me. I find it disgusting. I find it disgusting that people can sit up there and just spew out their vitriol, their ignorance, their hate, and get a bunch of followers and become little mini-celebrities. I just don't understand it. I don't want anything to do with it. But it's part of our society right now. And we have celebrities who, celebrity pastors is kind of a thing now. And in fact, you've, you've seen the fall in the last five years, but even just within the last year, if you pay attention to the news at all, that there's certain churches that are much more interested in attaching their pastoral leadership to celebrities, to famous singers, to famous actors, to people of celebrity, to in order to become part of that celebrity circle. And some of the stuff coming out in the news is saying that you know, the people that aren't in that upper crust of leadership are really made to serve that celebrity above them. And these churches are beginning to crumble because of this. Thank God. 
Because that's one thing God does. God keeps cleaning this thing up, even though we make big messes all the time. Historically, he keeps coming in and cleaning it up. But this idea, you know, this is the same, this idea of, you know, having their tassels long, their phylacteries wide, those are the, those are the same idea, the guys that like to wear the big watches, like I said, they got their Rolex, they roll in on their Bentley, they have their private jet that they need because they're a man of God and they need this. This is going on today. And the people that enable it are those that follow them, who get sucked into it, who are more concerned about the charisma about the person than the, two, the truth that that person is teaching. And so the prosperity gospel, even though it is nothing at all the gospel of Jesus Christ, is growing throughout the world because it tickles the ears and it's presented to them by people with charisma who use the name of Christ, who abuse the name of the Holy Spirit in order to draw people and make sure that their money goes into their bank account. And they go to the poorest nations of the world, the people who are the most desperate, and try and suck money out of them. It's disgusting. And Jesus called it out back then in the time of the Pharisees. And it still needs to be called out today. And I know that some of you don't like it. I'm all, I know I'm going to get a few emails because I always do whenever I talk about these folks. That, well, I feel like you're being kind of harsh and mean with other people who are serving Jesus. I don't believe they are serving Jesus. I think they're serving themselves. And you can say, that's judgmental. So be it. But Jesus thought the same thing about the Pharisees. So if you want to get mad at me, go after Jesus too. Because he didn't like what the Pharisees were doing. He didn't like the fact that they were claiming to be the followers of Yahweh. They didn't like that they were claiming to be under the guidance of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet were using their position to manipulate, to control, and to enrich. So if you've got a problem with me, I have no problem with you having a problem with me. Just be consistent and have a problem with Jesus too. Because he did not like this. And so he tells them, first of all, you guys need to get off your high horse. And he attacks the titles they use. And this is kind of interesting. He says, you're not to be called a rabbi, for you have one master, and you are all brothers. And you should not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teach, teacher, the Christ. And there's a couple of interesting things in this. One is that he is all, he's again speaking of himself as the authority. He's the one teacher. He is the Christ. And in this argument that he's been having with the Pharisees, he's made this clear that he believes he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And now he tells them, and you have one teacher, and that's me, the Christ. It's interesting, he doesn't address the Sadducees at all. Because the Sadducees, Jesus basically thinks they're, irreve they're, they're irrelevant to the argument. The Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in important concepts like the resurrection is the main important concept they didn't believe. So Jesus doesn't even address them in this thing. At least the Pharisees have his attention. The Sadducees, they don't have his attention. He doesn't even consider them part of the story. But he goes after the Pharisees because he does agree with some of what the Pharisees said, that they have the right to be teaching from the seat of Moses. Just don't do what they say. Because what they do is not of Christ, not of God. The other thing I find kind of interesting is how quickly, the, I wonder when the church really started to disregard this and start calling their priests father. I looked up in history, you know I'm a history geek. There's kind of a transition point, but there is no specific place, and this is never addressed. 
Why does the church just blatantly go against the word of God here and start calling their priests father? Because what does that end up doing? It ends up this putting into place a class of people which serve as the intermediary between God and man. And we're not supposed to have a class of clergy that do that. That's the role of Christ. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. It's not my role to be your mediator. And what I mean by that is that the grace is not necessary for you to have me in your life in order for you to commune with God. I am not the person through whom God's grace flows and into your life, which is how some of the church teaches grace and priesthood, that you need this person in order to receive forgiveness because the grace of God flows through the priest and to you as the supplicant seeking forgiveness. Or the grace of God flows through the priest to you getting married. Or the grace of God flows through the priest to those of you who are dying. The only way you receive the grace of God, which we sang about, grace, grace, God's grace, is only through a person called a priest. And in this, this is the exact same role as priests, be they pagan or not, throughout history, have always functioned in this place of you need to come to the priest in order to get to, their, to God, whatever God that is. It's a place of control, it's a place of abuse, it's a place of personal enrichment, and this has been the case throughout history, Christian or non-Christian, and Jesus says this needs to end because you have a relationship that is made possible directly with God through the power of His Holy Spirit. Now, it is true that just because you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, it doesn't mean that you necessarily know everything. I think many of you are believers here today and I doubt you've had many times where you just kind of lie there and you feel this download of all information and truth coming from God. And when you read the Bible, you just kind of get this straight download and you don't need any kind of interpretation or background to understand it at all. That's not the case. You're still a person that has within you the flesh. And we talked about that desire that we all struggle with to cooperate with the flesh and to cooperate with the spirit. We all still have that. And it does take some context and some understanding and reading a book or two to understand the context of Jesus' culture. But the, the words on this very basic, straightforward level doesn't require a whole lot of context. It's kind of the miracle of the Bible. That the miracle of the Bible is it has this deep, deep backstory, this deep, deep, rich history. But you really don't need it to understand the basic, what he's saying right here. You don't need to call anyone on earth these things. Because you have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. And it's interesting that Jesus says this while he's present. He's the Christ present. And then it continues on later when it becomes the role of the Holy Spirit to remind us of everything Jesus has taught us. It's one of those places where the Holy Spirit is in this place of our teacher. And the reason why he says this is because we have a tendency as human beings to want to follow anyone but Christ, even in the church. And this is coming back to how this thing started out today. This is one of the dangers of the marriage of church and state. Because it is our sinful nature to want to be drawn to those places which enrich us. I mean, why does the church struggle with tithing? Why? Because we don't want to give. That's ours. It's my stuff. It's what enriches me. And I have all kinds of people, I know right now just bringing up tithing is a trigger for some folks. And right now there's all kinds, but I give to this, and I choose to give to that, and I do that. You don't need to make an argument with me. 
just look at, the, look at what the scripture says about the place of tithing. And he talks about the Pharisees. He said, you guys did tithe. You do tithe. You give a tenth of your dill. You give a tenth of your mint. You give a tenth of your cumin. But you neglect the important things of the law, such as mercy and faithfulness and justice. When it comes to this church, I just want you to know, I understand who Jesus is talking to primarily in this passage, by the way. I understand he's talking to church leadership. He's talking to people like me. I get that. And that's why I always am trying to make it clear to you that I'm not your priest. I'm your priest in the sense that you are also my priest. There are times that I can go to some of you and say, I have this burden on my life. I need you to help pray because I'm in a dark place and I just can't pray. And in those places, you can act like my priest. And in those places, I can act like your priest. But the grace of God doesn't come through me. I'm a recipient of grace. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior just as much as you. And that's why I say to you often, I'm your brother. I may be an older brother. I may be a brother that's down the road a little bit longer. I'm a brother that's been called to a particular place in life. But I'm not your priest and I'm not your father. I'm your brother. And you can choose to take what I say and take it to heart and see if it helps your life in that you draw closer to God. You can reject it utterly. That's up to you. My accountability before God, and there is a high accountability before God for those who teach, and the scripture even says as much. Jesus tells them, not all of you should endeavor to teach and be teachers because you are held at a higher accountability. I read that. I get that. I'm terrified by that except for the grace of God by which I know that if I were to do something, there's, I'm still under his grace. But I understand that it's my role to teach with as much integrity to what the scripture says as humanly possible. But I also know this. There's going to be times I disappoint you. And I would just ask you this before you get too self-righteous about being disappointed with your brother. Are you ever disappointed with God? Have you ever been disappointed with God in your life? Things didn't really turn out the way you wanted? Well, if you're going to be disappointed with God at times in your life, believe me, you'll be disappointed with me. You'll be disappointed with a fallen human being. If you're going to be disappointed with the perfect God, then there's no way you're not going to be disappointed with a fallen human being. And that's what I am. And that's what you are. And we're to walk in this place with mercy and respect. And there is an order even given to the church. Even our church, there's an order. But that doesn't mean that we don't struggle sometimes because we're still fallen and we're still in need of a Savior no matter what goes on. And it would be my hope that you can understand that the church is a beautiful thing, but it's a complicated thing. And when we start to put ourselves ahead of the church, then we're going to start having difficulties. And this begins, and this selfishness manifests itself in church splits. It manifests itself in relationship splits. It manifests itself in entire kind of branches of, of the church splits. And it can manifest itself ultimately and most painfully in Christians killing Christians in the name of what? 
someone's delusion of power? Do we really want to get on board with that? This is why Jesus keeps saying this over and over and over again. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I know that none of us in this room today can do anything more than pray when it comes to what's happening in our world today. You know, we talked about the Ukraine is going on, but you know there's, uh, this is what I got from the news. I didn't fact check this. But I read that there's 27 armed conflicts going on in the world today. This isn't the only one. This is just the one that's like pretty close to our backyard living here in Europe. But we have brothers and sisters from Cameroon. Their country is in turmoil right now. You have armed conflicts going on in Syria still. You have armed conflicts going on all throughout the world. And the question that we need to ask ourselves as Christians when it comes to these issues that are bigger than us is how are we going to try and influence the sphere that we can influence by living as Christians? How can we influence the sphere of our friends? How can we influence the sphere of our families? How can we influence the sphere of our workmates? How can we be those people who are people of love, peace, mercy, justice, and kindness in these smaller spheres? Because if enough of us do that, then you know what? We could change the world because Jesus had 12 guys go out into the world, or actually 11 at the end there, and then Paul gets added in. Who changed the world and how did they do it? By changing the sphere of the people around them and showing that there is a different way to live. And I think that needs to be, even though this, this passage of Scripture is focused mostly on leadership, spiritual leadership, how they're acting, because I'm not really in this role of being a priest, because I'm in the role as a brother, I think we need to all hear this together. That it's not just talking about me, it's talking about us. As we are the ones who are to be salt and light into the world today. So how do we do that? Who can we influence? Who are you influencing? How are your actions influencing the others for the sake of Christ? Are you being people of unity? Are we being people of unity? Or are we being people of division, of selfishness, of self-absorption? And for IVCD to be the church that it is, because it's an international church, we have to be very aware of this. We have to be hyper-aware. Because we come from all these different backgrounds, and not just cultural backgrounds, not just language backgrounds, but also church backgrounds. And we have to understand that without love, there's no way this holds together, especially a church like this with so many varying backgrounds. And the miracle of IBCD, and the thing that you hear me talk about all the time, and I tell folks wherever I go, especially back when I go to the U.S., is that the miracle of IBCD is that we get along in spite of all these changes, all these different differences, not just country cultures, but also church cultures. But that unity rides on a razor's edge. And as soon as one of us decides, or a group of us, or two or three of us decide that we're going to go off into our own selfishness, it causes a lot of issues. And I've been here 10, almost 11 years now, I can tell you. I've been through a couple of those times, and they are no fun. When a few selfish people decide to try and take the church away into what they want 
We've had it over financial issues. We've had it over, very rarely is it over theological issues. We have it over everything else but theology. But it becomes a selfish thing. And we're not the only church. In the United States, Baptists, we kind of laughingly call ourselves the battling Baptists because that's what we do. We tend to be selfish and fight. And it's a disgusting display to the world about what it means to be a Christian and walking in the love of Christ. So as we go through this challenging time, of course we have the challenging time of COVID, but now we have an additional challenging time of, of war. When I was, I have a, there's a Thursday morning men's coffee thing that we meet at 7.30 in the morning, which people are welcome to join, men are welcome to join, in the uh, Allstadt, not the Allstadt, down by, uh, anyways, it's in downtown Dusseldorf. And I was coming off the train, and there was a group of young people speaking Russian, watching their phones, laughing, and pounding each other on the back. And it made my heart break. Because they're laughing and they're pounding each other on the back in a sense of patriotism over the death of their brothers and sisters in the Orthodox Church. The only people that can make a change are us. The only people that can make a change in the world are the believers who are going to live with the fruits of the Spirit. And this is, we get into it with our Pentecostal brethren. Well, you're not really filled with the Spirit because you don't speak in tongues. The fruit of the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. The fruit of the Spirit is not healing. The fruit of the Spirit is not even the administrative gifts or prophecy. The fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, is love, joy. You can probably say it with me now. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if we want to glorify God, then these are the fruits of the, these are the fruits that need to be displayed within the people of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what a timely what a timely synchronicity here of this passage and the and the world that we're living in right now where we're seeing the abuse of power. We're witnessing the terrible costs of it. And it's an abuse which is not unique to Russia. It's an abuse which almost everyone here, our countries at some point, have indulged in and may be indulging in right now. And Lord, in these times, it's difficult when the church doesn't seem to understand who its leader really is. And we know that we are to respect the government according to your word. But when they call us to do something that is just completely beyond the pale, which is one thing would be to kill other people, especially those who claim to be our brothers and sisters, then we have to really question who do we really follow. And Father, I pray that you would give peace in this in Europe that you've been peace in this Ukrainian situation we know a part of us knows that according to your word as the end draws near there'll be wars and rumors of war and yeah in fact you tell us that we shouldn't get too wound up about that because wars and rumors of war are just part of what human beings do but at the same time we need to be aware just be aware 
if, according to your word, things aren't going to get better if we have this utopian hope for a future on earth we're dreaming. But at the same time, no matter what pressure we're under, no matter what is the situation, no matter what is the time of our age, we're to be your followers, your people. And may we express it in the love that we have for one another and even according to our Lord Jesus Christ, even the love that we are to extend toward our enemies. We pray for our Orthodox brethren and sistering who are in the middle of this. Pray that they would turn their eyes to you and raise up a voice of anger and protest to the destruction of basically their cousins in faith. Actually, their own brothers and sisters in faith, cousins in nationality. We pray for Cameroon, you know, a country that is basically divided over language and, and the cultural, ethnic, uh, cultural things that come with language and, and different values of a legal system and all that. It's, it's, it's complicated, but love can overcome these things. Pray for a real peace in Syria, though that thing is just such a mess and so much misery. And we pray for other places around the world that are in times of conflict right now. Pray for the people of Hong Kong, pray for the people of China and how they feel about this whole thing and this, the tension that is in the Pacific as China watches to see what is going to happen to Russia as they make their plans for Taiwan. Father, in all these places, as people we feel very small, but you are the God who is over all things. And so we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you guide us in how we are to be in those people we can influence. And in our prayers, we will seek to influence the rest of the world, even the mightiest of rulers. We pray your Holy Spirit, be they believers or not, because we know from the Scripture you can do this, that you would work on their hearts to bring about mercy and justice. We'd like to pray for humility too, knowing that that's probably the least likely one that they're going to be willing to give in to. But we pray for humility as well. For you have told us what we are to do and what you desire of us is to love, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.